Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And again, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're in the book of Genesis this summer, looking at the life of Abraham. And this morning we will be in Genesis chapter 18. If you'd like to turn there, if you're using one of the pew Bibles you'll find in front of you, you'll find that on page uh, 12 and 13. As you're turning there, a couple public service announcements. Uh, if you came in and had trouble finding a seat or even worse, had a, trouble finding a place to park, we, we do apologize. You might have missed when you came in the announcement that we are going back to two services uh, two weeks from today. So hopefully that will get a little bit easier. also want to let you know that uh, we bought recently uh, a really snazzy uh, hearing aid system for uh, the sanctuary. So if you have trouble with your hearing, we have some... Uh, hearing aid supplement things are available for that. I don't even understand the technology, but it helps. And remarkably, it also slows down my sermons. So <laughs> if I talk too fast, it's like TiVo. You can get those and that'll solve your problem also. As we're looking at the life of Abraham, we've been talking about our, our series this summer in terms of this, that uh, in terms of living in light of God's promises, because Abraham was a man who re received promises from God, and he has much to teach us about living in light of those promises from our gracious God. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive right in with Genesis 18 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would speak to us through your word. It is your word. And we, whether we realize it or not at this moment, desperately need to hear your word. You are the one who spoke and everything came into being. You're the one who speaks and brings the dead to life. You're the one who speaks, and your people hear your voice and are refreshed. Would you speak to us this morning? We ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit, and it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 18, we'll be picking up at verse 16, where we left off last week and reading through the end of the chapter. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them, set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. 
He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is just a strange story, isn't it? Uh, You know, it looks, when we read it, certainly on the surface, it looks like Abraham is haggling with God over the fate of Sodom. You know, like he's trying to maybe twist God's arm just a little bit or talk him into being merciful. Like he's, he's bargaining with God, trying to get God to do something that maybe he's not so inclined to do. Uh, it sounds a little bit like a uh, parable about prayer that Jesus told in Luke chapter 11. And after all, that's what Abraham's doing. He's praying. He's speaking to God. And in this parable, Jesus says this. He, he tells this story about praying. He says, you know, there was once a guy who, who had a, a friend come to him in the middle of the night on a journey. And banged on his door, came in, and he realized he didn't have any food for his friend. So he went, so the guy left. He went over to his neighbor, who was a friend of his, and banged on his door and said, I had somebody visiting. I need some bread. And the guy yelled down, go away. It's midnight. Everybody's in bed. Go away. I know you're my friend. I'm not going to help. Go somewhere else. And the guy keeps banging on the door until finally, Jesus says, the man comes down and gives his friend the bread, not because he's generous and wants to do it, but essentially because he won't leave him alone. And because of his persistence, he gives him what he asked for. Now, that sounds a little bit like what's going on here, right? You've got Abraham coming to God, and he's banging on the door, and he's saying, you know, will you do this? Will you spare these people? Well, what's going on? Well, how, how is, what is God thinking about these people? If you were to go back to Luke 11 in that parable, you'd, you'd see as you read on that actually Jesus tells this parable to say, you know, that at the end of the day, if you're persistent, even your friend will give you something. Well, God is not like that. You don't have to bang on his door like that because he wants to help. He rushes to help. That story is actually a story of contrast. And we're going to find similarly here that it's not as if God is come, or if Abraham's coming to God and banging on the door trying to get God to do something that he doesn't want to do. He's coming to God, bringing him a request that God welcomes him to bring. God wants to hear this request, and he wants to meet it. That's what's going on here. Abraham's not trying to wheedle God for something he's reluctant to, to give. Rather, we're going to see that God and Abraham are on the same side, working together to bring mercy and blessing to the, to the world. So we're going to see that this morning as we look at three things. We're going to look at the paradox here, the priest, and the promise. The paradox, priest, and the promise. Today's sermon is brought to you by the letter P and the number three. Okay, first, the paradox that's here. You know what, you know what a paradox is? A paradox is something that at least on the surface seems like a contradiction. At the end of the day, the pieces do fit together, but it takes a while to figure out how something that seems like a contradiction can actually be reconciled. And we see this seeming paradox here in a couple ways. First, we see it in the very character of God himself. That's what lies behind the paradox here. A paradox of this. How are we going to see both justice and mercy upheld in this story and, in fact, throughout Scripture and in this world? How are we going to see those two things held together? First, we see this paradox in the character of God. 
God himself is a God who is just and righteous. He always upholds what is true and right and just. And Abraham proclaims that much when he speaks to God. He comes to God and he says, he says you're not going to punish the wicked along with the righteous, are you? He says, surely the judge of all the earth will do right. He comes to God and says, I know what you are like. I know your character. You are just and righteous. You will do what is right. And we see that throughout Scripture, that God is just and righteous. But we also see another theme that runs throughout Scripture, that God is also merciful and gracious, that he is just, but that he also comes with the desire to bring healing and blessing and forgiveness. God is both of these things. He is just and righteous, and he is merciful. And because that is his character, it leads him to his commitments that he will exercise justice in the world. God does bring justice. Now, we're going to look at this idea of God's justice in much more depth next week. When we get to Genesis chapter 19 and we see what God sees when the angels come to the city of Sodom. And we see what God does in response. But for this morning, all I want to simply bring out is that God is a God of justice. He has a commitment to it. And there's a reason for that. Listen to what God hears. And he tells us this in verse 20 of chapter 18. He says this, uh, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. The outcry against them is very grave. Robert Alter, a Hebrew scholar, said this. He said that the word outcry, when you re- read it in scripture, it's often associated in the Psalms and the prophets with the shrieks of torment of the oppressed. That's the sound that is reaching God's ears. This incredible oppression that is happening because of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. God hears the cries of those who are in pain and those who are oppressed. And because of that, because he's a God of justice, he must come and answer those cries. Now, maybe um, that doesn't make sense for you on the surface. Maybe you're, you're thinking this morning, you think something like this. I believe in God, a God of love, not a God of judgment and wrath. That maybe in your mind those things don't go together. But do you hear what God hears at Sodom? Do you hear the cries of the oppressed? Do you hear the cries and shrieks of those in torment? Scripture tells us time and again, and it begins here, that when suffering people cry out, God hears them. And he hears them that he might act. Because throughout Scripture, the hope of the oppressed and the suffering is that God does hear their cries and He will do something. He will deliver them. He will bring the justice that they are crying out for. He promises that one day He will indeed stop the wicked, bring justice, deliver the oppressed. You see, God's justice is actually an expression of His love. He hears the cries. And at the same time, he's a God who desires to show mercy and grace. And we see that happening from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin and fall away and turn their backs on God, God does not end the story there, though he would have been justified in doing that. He had said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And what happens when they eat the fruit? He shows them mercy. He lets them live that there might be an answer to their sin, that there might be healing, that there might be reconciliation with God. In other words, God doesn't wipe the slate clean like maybe you and I would. Uh, My mother is an artist, and she paints with watercolor. And every time we go and visit their house, we see that lots and lots of her paintings end up in trash. 
Because somewhere in the middle of, of her paintings, there's, an, there's a, a brush stroke that goes awry. And my mom's incredibly critical uh, eye, she looks at it and she says, that's just not good enough. And she crumples it up and she starts all over again. And if you're an artist, maybe you've had that experience. But God doesn't do that with his world. He doesn't do that even though humanity turns away from him, even though that mankind has come and splattered his canvas with blood and lies and hatred and hardness. He chooses not to turn away. He chooses not to crumple it up. But he chooses instead to bring mercy to his world. And it's said this way here in verse 18 of our chapter. He looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, he shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. A phrase that we've heard time and again as we've looked at the life of Abraham. God has called him to come and be a blessing to bring this blessing of God's mercy and his grace to the whole world. So you see the paradox there, right? On the one hand, God is just and he will act justly. On the other hand, he is merciful and he desires to bring blessing. How are those two commitments of God going to meet in the real world? How is he going to uphold his justice and righteousness and also bring forgiveness? How? God's answer comes in uh, the second point that we've got here. It comes in the provision of a priest. It comes in the provision of a priest, one that we see here in the person of Abraham. Abraham is called to be a priest. It's not a word that we use very often. It's not a concept we think of very often. So I'm going to tell us four things about what it means to be a priest here. We're going to look at the call, the concern, the courage, and the creativity of Abraham, the priest. First, his call. God comes to Abraham and calls him to come and serve as a priest. A priest is one who stands before God on behalf of the people. Okay, in the Bible you also read about prophets. Prophets are those who take God's word and bring it to God's people. And the priests are those who bring the needs of God's people and come and bring them to God. And most often in Scripture we see priests, you know... uh, working out their role specifically as they offer sacrifices. Well, sacrifice is one method of, one way of interceding for God's people, of bringing their needs and even their faults before God that they might be forgiven. And Abraham steps into that call here as a priest as he comes and intercedes. He acts as an intermediary between the people and God. You see, God has called Abraham into this priestly role to be a blessing to the nations And notice how God does this for Abraham. Abraham knows that's his calling. And as God, at the very beginning of our section here this morning, he begins to speak kind of out loud. You know, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm going to do, given that I've called him to be a blessing to the Lord? You know, what's it like when somebody says that to you? Should I tell you about this? Well, of course you're going to. Once you say that, of course you're going to. You're going to tell him, you're going to let him in. And that's what God does. He comes to Abraham with this invitation. Abraham, let me tell you what I'm about to do. Implicitly inviting Abraham to step into the role that he's called him to as a priest, as an intermediary. It's the call of a priest. But priests have a certain concern. Look at the concern that Abraham has here. A priest is concerned for the people, for their people. Okay, throughout Scripture, when you see priests uh, being used by God, they come to God on behalf of their people. You know, one example is um, in Mo- with Moses when uh, the people sin and, and 
uh, put together this golden calf to worship when they turn away from God. Uh, this is reflected on by the psalmist in, in 106. Here's how the, the way the psalmist tells the story. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Do you hear what Moses does? He comes and intercedes as a priest for God's people and says, don't punish them for the sin that they have done, though they deserve it. And that's what happens time and again in Scripture. The priest comes for his people. But something different is happening here. What is Abraham's concern? Let me ask it this way. Whom is Abraham trying to save? Who's he trying to save? Abraham's nephew Lot and his family are in Sodom. But listen to the way this conversation with God goes. He does not come to God and say, God, you know my relative Lot is there and his family. Would you please spare them? He doesn't do what every other priest in the Old Testament does, which is to come for his people. What does he do? He says, not just simply save them. He says, Lord, there are, if there are righteous people in the city, even though they're wicked, would you save the whole city? Would you spare everything? Would you spare everyone, not simply the righteous? He could have asked God to come rescue even the 50 righteous people in the city and not spare everyone else. God knows how to do that. In Exodus, when God brings the plagues on Egypt, it says that he brings the plagues on the Egyptians and spares the Israelites even as they are in the midst of those. God knows how to selectively bring his punishment. Abraham doesn't ask for that. He says, would you spare the city? He comes interceding not just for the righteous, but for the wicked. Verse 24, he says, will you sweep away the place, the whole place? Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar, says this, Here Abraham is not praying for his own people, but for Sodom. And this makes this episode unique. Elsewhere in Scripture, Abraham is referred to as the friend of God. Somebody that spoke with God face to face. Someone with whom God shared his plans and his purposes, just as he does in this chapter. Well, one of the things that we see here is that, God, or that Abraham, who is called the friend of God, as one other commentator says, was this Abraham, the friend of God, was also the friend of sinners. You see what he's doing? He's stepping in into his calling from verse 18 to bless all the nations of the earth. He is already doing what God's called him to. He comes and intercedes for those who are lost, for those who are on the outside, for those who are wicked. He comes and intercedes for Sodom. Let me just ask at this point, you know, is our picture of God's grace this big that we can see Abraham here caring for the wicked, for the lost? Do we have the heart of Abraham the priest to bring God's mercy to the world around us like that? To a world just as Abraham's did that manifestly deserves God's judgment, but he comes pleading for mercy instead. 
See, so Abraham comes and he steps into this call and he steps into the concerns for the world. And then he also steps in encouraged. I mean, we might just slide right past this. We're used to seeing Abraham. We're used to seeing people in Scripture talking to God. Well, the truth is that we often ourselves come to God almost thoughtlessly, right? Of course God's my Father. Of course He'll listen to my prayers. Uh, and there, sometimes there's very good intimacy that's there, just like you might run up to your own father, not having to worry about fears of him because you know he's good. Well, for Abraham, he is in uncharted waters because this is actually the first time in the Bible that a person initiates a conversation with God. It's the first time in the Bible where somebody begins by praying to God, starts the conversation with him, and he comes and asks God face-to-face a question essentially about God's character. You are righteous and just. You will not sweep away the wicked or the uh, righteous with the wicked, will you? You won't do that. You, you may be familiar with the, um, you know, the uh, illustration, the, you know, the quote from the, the Beaver family in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe when uh, Lucy asked the beaver, she said, you know, about Aslan, the great lion, this God figure. He, she, he says, is he safe? And the beaver says to Lucy, you know, he's not safe, but he is good. Now, to hear what Abraham's doing, though, you need to hear the flip side of that. He is good, but he is still a lion. <laughs> he is good, but he is coming in the presence of God with courage What happens in the presence of an earthly judge when you go into a courtroom? All rise. Everyone is quiet and everyone shows their respect. How much more so for Abraham as he comes before the judge of all the earth? He comes courageously, but he also comes creatively and theologically even. Um, A number of years ago, uh, one of the pastors in our denomination, Tim Keller, preached a sermon on this passage to our general assembly and the weekend after that, all those pastors went back to their home churches around the country and sort of preached the same sermon because it was so good. And lots of this is uh, I owe to him. And certainly this point, he brings out something incredibly insightful here. That Abraham, when he comes as priest, he is making a profound theological leap here as he comes before God. Because in Abraham's time... And in his day, much more even than our own, everybody understood that there was not only individual responsibility, but there's corporate responsibility. And that an individual, by his own erring and even sin, could bring disaster and judgment upon a whole community. I mean, his culture understood personal responsibility, but they had a much bigger concept of the ways that we are all woven together. And our lives are woven together And responsibility is woven together. So everybody would have understood that wrath could come because of one person, for example, for their sin, for their unrighteousness. And Abraham comes to him in that context and says a couple things. First, as we've said, he comes and says, God, I know that you are just. You won't punish the the righteous along with the wicked, will you? But then he goes a step further. He makes a theological leap and lands on solid ground. And here's what he asks. Essentially this, is it possible, not only, God, that you will uphold the righteous, but that you will go the further step and take the righteousness of the righteous and apply it to the wicked? That you might take the righteousness, the presence of righteous people in Sodom, and use that righteousness to cover the wickedness of the wicked? Is it possible, God, 
that you can take the righteousness of one and apply it to another. It's the opposite of an example maybe that you've seen or heard about sin. And maybe you've heard it this way, that somebody takes a glass of water, okay, and you can see right through it, it's clear. And then you take um, a dropper of ink, and if you put a drop of ink in it, black ink, that it, it spreads throughout and the whole glass is colored, right? Even one drop of sin contaminates the whole glass. Well, Abraham is essentially asking the opposite of that. God, is it possible that you could take a glass that is full of ink, that is black and dark all the way through, and you could take the dropper of water and put 50 drops in there, and the ink would disperse, and the whole thing would become clean. Is it possible you could do that with 50 drops? With 45? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? God, can you do that? Abraham makes this leap of, is it possible, God, that you can take righteousness and have it cover the sin of the wicked? And God's response is yes. For 50, yes. 45, yes. And on down the line. See what Abraham's hit upon. It is possible to be forgiven, to be spared, to be counted righteousness because of the righteousness of another, a theme that becomes very, very important in Scripture. Now, here's the thing, though. If you're tracking with this, you see where Abraham's headed. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And then he stops, right? And he doesn't ask the question that maybe we thought he should ask. But why? Why does he stop? Why doesn't he do what we want him to do next? If you can do it for 10, can you do it? But he doesn't ask it. What happens? Does he lose his nerve? Maybe, maybe he figures with God he's... Uh, he's on, you know, he's on shaky ground here as far as Abraham's concerned. This is new for him. You know, maybe I've pushed God as far as he can go. Maybe in spite of Abraham's creativity and his theological astuteness here, maybe uh, not even Abraham could have imagined that God could really just take that one drop and make the whole thing clean. You know, whatever Abraham's reasons for stopping, even if he had gone that one last stop, or that one last step, God, could you spare the city for the sake of one righteous person? The truth is, ultimately, it wouldn't have been enough. Why? Well, because the city of Sodom did not have the one righteous man that they needed the most. You see, the paradox of God with his just judgment and with his mercy and grace and how those are met through the intercession of a priest who comes pleading to God. But we see Abraham, the priest, does not take us far enough. And it takes us to our last point, the promise that Abraham is the one who's going to bring blessings to the nation, stands in the place of one who will eventually replace him, the greater one to come, the greater priest to come, the greater offspring of Abraham, the one who will ultimately actually bring the fulfillment of the blessing to the nations. Abraham's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, right? That we see just as God's character is just and it is merciful, we see that Jesus, God's Son, is also the expression of His character. It is Jesus Himself that brings God's justice and mercy together. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is explaining what Jesus did for us. And he says this, that Jesus gave Himself for us so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Christ. What does that mean? That God is just. He punishes sin. But God justifies. He declares sinners not guilty. He, in Christ, is the one who is just and the justifier. How does He do that? He takes the sin of His people and puts it on the head of Jesus. God does pour out His wrath and judgment on sin. And for God's people, what does Scripture tell us? He pours it out on the person of His Son, Jesus. God is just. He punishes sin. But He is our justifier. He doesn't punish us. And He becomes the great priest for us. We're going to sing a hymn at the end of our service this morning called Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And here's what one of the stanzas of that hymn says. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Justice smiles and asks no more because justice has been satisfied. God's wrath has been spent and we are set free. See, Jesus is the one who brings the true expression of God's character and purposes. He is the one who is the true offspring of Abraham, the true priest, the one who brings God's blessings that he promised to Abraham to the whole world. It is in Christ that we find the answer to verses like this in John 3.16. For God so loved whom? The world. For God so loved Sodom and Gomorrah. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Luke 19.10, Jesus says about himself that he came to seek and to save the lost. Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hebrews chapter 4, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, Abraham had gotten a glimpse of the magnitude of God's righteousness and the magnitude of God's grace, a grace that could cover the sin of the wicked, and he guessed at and groped for what we finally see clearly in the one righteous man, Jesus, the high priest of all high priests, the Son of God Himself, the one who really is the friend of sinners. Do you see who Christ is for you? He is your priest, the better priest than Abraham. The priest who doesn't simply come to God saying, would you please spare them for the sake of these ten righteous people? He is The perfect priest who comes and says, spare them for the sake of the one righteous man. Spare them for my sake, my life for theirs. May the curse of their sin fall on me. May my righteousness cover them. You see, Abraham was exactly right. The righteousness of one can cover the wickedness of many, but he did not yet see, except hazily and in the distance, the one who would step into that place and be the righteous one for him, the righteous one. For us. Brothers and sisters, Christ is this for you. All that you need. Bringing us the love and forgiveness of God unbreakably, forever. Not because you and I are good. We're not. 
not because of our attempts to clean ourselves up as if those attempts work, they don't, but because we have Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the High Priest, the Savior. Which brings us back to the opening question we asked. As we see Abraham standing there before God, and is he haggling with him? Is he twisting his arm? Is he trying to get God to do something he doesn't want to do? No. What do we see in Abraham in this uh, interaction with God? We see his partnership with God. We see our gracious God calling Abraham and ultimately and fully calling Christ to come, that he might be both just that he might hear the cries of the oppressed, but that he might also bring his mercy for us, even us, and even today. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you give us a bigger picture of who you are, Jesus, for us as priest. I pray specifically that it would give us courage. Courage to own up to what is true about us. Courage not to hide Courage not to try to make ourselves look good to you and to our family and to our friends. Courage to be able to look at our failings right in the eye and say, but you don't win. Christ does. I am forgiven for his sake. May that make us bold like Abraham and humble like Abraham as we too come to you, a God who is just and the justifier of all who put their faith in Christ. And it is in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Son of Abraham, the greater high priest that we pray. Amen.